Throughout Christ's ministry, he called people to follow him, to deny self in pursuit of Christ above all else. But what is Christ's call to deny ourselves, take up our own cross, and follow him mean for us today? Is this call made to the neglect of all other earthly responsibilities? The gospel of Jesus has implications for every part of our lives, and we must learn what these are if we are to faithfully follow him. In Mark's gospel, we will learn of the kingdom of God and our part in it. We'll see Christ's identity as the suffering servant, his authority as the son of God, and what each of these mean for those who call Christ Lord. As we look at the life of Jesus in Mark's gospel, we'll see what it means to grow as his disciples and lay down our lives as we follow him. Well, if we've not met yet, my name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor here, and we are doing a series right now, as you just saw, through the Gospel of Mark. So if you could grab your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 8, that's where we'll be picking it up today. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of the blue ones nearby you. It's on page 492, and if you don't own a Bible at all, please take that. That's a gift uh, of, for, from us to give to you. Just take home and read it. I'd encourage you to, to be thinking and contemplating some of what it tells us about who Jesus is. So Mark chapter 8. Um, one of my favorite short stories is uh, a little brief story called The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Uh, it came out in 1939, so if you haven't read it by now, you're a little late to the party. It's been turned into a couple different movies, most recently in, I think, 2013 with Ben Stiller, which really was nothing at all like the short story itself. Uh, but it's a fascinating story about a guy named Walter Mitty who lives a life of daydreams. The story begins with an account of a Navy plane flying through a terrible storm. The captain and the first, the first chair and all those other pieces are yelling at each other that we need to spin up the RPMs in order to get through this terrible storm ahead of us, only to suddenly turn to, out of his daydream to his wife sitting next to him. He was driving and going 55 miles an hour when she will never go over 40. The story continues through extravagant tales where Walter is the hero of each, every single one of these individual stories, only at the end of the story to be snapped back to reality by someone in the real world. Now, when you read the story, it's almost a little bit like trying to have a conversation with your kids. It's essentially like they're only half listening or only listening with, with one ear, but they're still thinking and operating in their own little world. They're so lost in their thoughts that they miss anything that's going on around them. In today's text, the disciples are a little bit like that. Jesus keeps doing these huge miracles. He keeps providing these evidences of who he really is. He's trying to point them to the bigger reality, the bigger story of what's taking place around them, and they keep missing it. So hopefully by now you have Mark 8. If you do, I invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together this morning. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, we'll read all the way through verse 21. Hear the word of the Lord. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, 
And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? As you're seated, I'd ask you to once again please pray with me. God, we thank you for the, the demonstration and example of your miraculous provision of us. I pray that unlike your early disciples, we would have soft hearts and sensitive spirits to trust in, to rely on your provision for us. May we, we not be distracted by the cares and concerns of this world. May we not add things to the faith that we need, the faith that has been delivered down through generations to today. May we, through our time together, be reminded to fix our gaze on you. We thank you for your words to us, the way that they speak truth into our lives and shape and conform us into your image. Please allow them to soak deeply into our hearts and minds and transform us from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've been with us for a few weeks now, this should sound eerily similar to a story that Micah preached through just a few weeks ago for us. And we see another account of a miraculous healing. Well, it begins by saying, in those days. So Jesus is still now in the area of the Gentiles. While he's there, it says that a great crowd had gathered around him. Now, it's been a few weeks since we talked about this, so we'll see how your memories are. Who remembers what Jesus' primary ministry is? I, there, I, someone had to say it loud. I heard whispers. Teaching. The primary focus, the primary reason, the primary thing Jesus is going to continually come back to is teaching. Now, it's not a stretch to make that leap in this story either, because just like the last story, what it says is a great crowd appeared, says Jesus moved with compassion towards them and began to teach them. Now, I want to take a minute and think about this idea again. I was reminded just this past week of how important it is to have a word-centered ministry. And I've shared with all of you before how tempting it can become to either assume or neglect keeping God's Word the center and the focus of everything we do. But I think part of the difficulty with that is we don't always know what that means or what it looks like in everyday life. Now, the first thing we need to talk about this is what is ministry? What is ministry? Now, I've used it repeatedly. I've used it in sermons multiple times, and it's a word that tends to get assumed without intentional thought given to it. Another way of translating the word ministry is serving. So when we come across a passage like Ephesians 4.12, which says to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, and that specific text is saying God gives leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry, you could translate it as God gives us leaders 
to equip the saints for the work of service. So what we're doing when we're ministering to each other is serving one another. The second thing we need to realize is every single person in this room has been given a gift or multiple gifts from God for the good of those around you. And my job, along with the rest of the leadership in the church, is to equip you to grow in and use those gifts. But they're supposed to be done in the context of a church. You cannot use your gifts for the service of yourself. The third thing is that the driving force behind all of these gifts of service is the Word. That means we need regular time in the Word. We can't grow apart from the Word, and apart from regular time in God's Word, we will literally die, shrivel up as Christians. So this gets us to the question, whose job is it to speak the Word? Say it after me, everyone. Point to yourself and say, mine. There you go. That's the key to all of us thriving as a healthy, functioning church. All of us need to be speaking the truths of God's Word to each other as often as we can. That is how Jesus commanded us to make and mature disciples. It is through God's Word. Now, we've seen that explicitly throughout Jesus' ministry here in Mark. He's always bringing things back to the Word. He's always looking for opportunities to teach. We saw a few weeks ago, he told a parable, a story of sowing the Word, no matter what the soil is. What that tells us is regardless of the person you're interacting with and regardless of their response to your teaching of the Word, our job as Christians is to keep speaking God's word to them. But let's think about just a few ways that you could easily do that. One, today, after our worship service, after our time together, find someone else and share with them what you learned. There's a bunch of things that you could think of that you learned about. We sang a bunch of songs that are centered on God's word. There was a prayer time where, where you were hopefully talking and praying, interceding on behalf of, of someone or yourself to God. Share what you were praying about. We'll be talking, I've got approximately 26 minutes left. Pick something, one thing from the sermon that stood out to you and share with someone else why it stood out to you and what the significance or meaning of it is. Another option, find someone to meet with on a regular basis or maybe some ones, maybe it's a a small group of people. Look for ways you can share with each other what God has been teaching you through his word. Maybe it is looking for an opportunity to share with your unbelieving neighbor what God has been teaching you. Maybe something that you read that day, a verse that stood out to you, or something that you sung in corporate worship, something that you maybe hadn't thought of before. Maybe for you it is serving in kids or student ministry, looking for an opportunity to share God's word with with some of the younger people who still are, are a part of our church. Maybe it is sharing with a roommate or your spouse or kids something from God's word and then talking about what it means and how to apply it to your life. The key is that it takes all of us actually being in God's word and making that word a high enough priority in all of our lives that we can speak God's truths to each other. Can you imagine being in a church where everyone knows what they're supposed to be doing? We do, it just takes work and effort to actually do it and live it out. Now, back to this great crowd who is being taught by Jesus. Just as we saw last time, we saw an account of a miraculous feeding of a great crowd of people, a similar idea appears that Jesus is is moved towards these people. Verse 2 says, I have compassion on the crowd. This should force us to, to ask a question. So we are supposed to represent Jesus today. Do you have compassion toward people in need? Think of how Jesus describes the final judgment in Matthew 25. He says, on the last day, whatever you did for the least of these, you did to me. 
Now, he lists some specific examples, things like hungry, things like thirsty, when I was a stranger, you welcomed me, when I was naked, you clothed me, but whatever you did for the least of these, you did to me. One of the things that set the early church apart was their care and concern for others in an inherently selfish culture. In Acts, the church was actually described as not having a needy person among them. How do you think we could live that out today? We were talking about this some before our staff meeting this past week. We are commanded, all of us, to be hospitable. But what do you do if, if someone can't afford to invite someone else over? This is a legitimate issue. But then taking it a step further, what does outreach or mercy ministry or benevolence, whatever you want to call it, look like in the church today? Now, there's a really helpful book. Um, so I've, I've recommended the, the like, primary book that these two guys, Stephen, Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert, put together called Helping Without Hurting. Um, then they've done all these like, little subsequent ones about uh, uh, short-term missions and small groups. This one is titled Helping Without Hurting in Church Benevolence, A Practical Guide to Walking with Low-Income People. Now, this book is super helpful and super enlightening, along with the, the primary uh, book that they wrote, to, to talk about a few different ways that we can engage those around us who have needs. Now, one of the things that they say in the book, and I think this is really crucial when we have this conversation, is our job as a church isn't to alleviate poverty. Our job is to be ambassadors of reconciliation. There you go, Bruce, your favorite verse. Let me read that again. Our job as the church isn't to alleviate poverty. Our job is to be ambassadors of reconciliation. Now, the alleviating poverty, if it were only alleviating poverty, that would be way too easy. But what we are actually commanded to do is be ministers, bearers of reconciliation in every sphere. What they talk about in the book is, is the way the fall, Genesis 3, broke four relationships. We tend to think of it as just our relationship to God. But in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, it broke their relationship with God. It broke their relationship with themselves. It broke their relationship with others. And it broke the relationship between them and the rest of creation. Four different relationships that were severed, broken, because of the fall. So then how do we help people reconcile with all four of those relationships? This is really hard to do. And something that I confess I was completely unprepared for when I started ministry. You know how many people look for churches when they need money or help? It's astounding how many people will just show up at, the, at, at a church door during the week. So I have been chewed out, I have been cussed out, and I have been yelled at because we wouldn't help someone, which means it gets hard at times to have a soft heart toward people when you find out you've been taken advantage of. Uh, first church I was at was in Cheyenne, Wyoming. The church was a, a little bit on the outskirts of town, and so people had to like actively try to come and find our parking lot. People wouldn't just like drive in there because there was nothing out there. And there was one day in particular that I was waiting at church. We kept some like uh, uh, gas and grocery store gift cards in the main office just in case someone came in asking for help. And I saw a, a car drive through the driveway, park in our parking lot, and wait just a few minutes. Someone came in and shared a story. I don't know how much of it was true. So I, I gave them a gift card. I prayed with them and then sent them on their way. I watched them walk out in the parking lot, get in the car, and then saw the person that was sitting in the passenger seat hop out, come in, and start trying to tell me the exact same story. I said, I just gave the other guy that was in the car with you a gift card. And he was like, well, I thought I'd try. Walked back out. A couple months ago, we, uh, in, 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 we were sitting in, in our office over here, had someone come in and say, claim that his mom just died and she was a longtime member of the church. We had no records of her. So he went in and talked to Micah for over an hour. Micah, he claimed he was homeless, he didn't have any money, he didn't have a ride, didn't have a, a cell phone, any of those issues. Micah called a, a uh, like low income for uh, those who... who uh, like young people, a place for them to stay in St. Paul. 
went out and got him a, a gift card for the, the Metro bus system. Micah printed off the number for him to call when he got there and the address, gave it on a piece of paper, and handed it to the guy. Guess what he did with it? Shoved it right in the couch cushion and got up and walked out. It, it's really hard in the midst of those stories and those situations, seeing these things happen, to continue having a compassionate heart towards people like that. But it's not just being taken advantage of because we need to view people holistically, not just viewing financial poverty as the primary problem. Sometimes there are legitimate short-term needs. Unfortunately, it's not sufficient when we actually need to care for people who are complex and thus require complex help. And on top of that, there's even an inherent tension in some of these conversations. Like Jesus says in Matthew 26, 11, you will always have the poor with you, always. That's going to be a reality until Jesus comes back. The question is, what do we do with it? Or another passage, like Galatians 6.10, where we're commanded, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And I didn't even mention this earlier, but in, in the passage that I mentioned earlier, where Jesus said, what you did for the least of these, he goes on to say, the least of these, my brothers. So there's a different context or a different way that we're supposed to engage or approach or care for those who are a part of our body versus those who are not. Now, we're commanded to care for everyone, but there's a different level of care that we should have for fellow believers. Now, one of the things we have a need for here at South Suburban is a group of people with a heart for mercy ministries to help us with our benevolence funds, to help equip and encourage people to grow as healthy individuals. If you're interested in that, please come and talk to me. And on top of that, there's also all sorts of ways that we can approach some of these issues. So quick show of hands, how many of you uh, sponsor children through either like Compassion, World Vision, or Global Fingerprints? Quick show of hands. That's great. That has proven to be one of the best ways to help people in, in uh, other majority world countries who are stuck in poverty. I had the opportunity uh, just a couple weeks ago to meet with someone from Global Fingerprints and was blown away by some of the ways that, that they are able to reach the least of these. I know other people who, who every time they drive, they have a few dollars in, in their cup holder so they can give it out to those who are begging on the side of the road. Uh, anytime I'm begging, I, I take time consciously to pray for them. I run into people at gas stations before as I'm traveling across the country who, who asked me to pay for their gas money and I've paid for gas for them. It, it just takes careful observance of the people who are moving around nearby you. So what we see here is compassion is what drove Jesus and compassion is what should drive us as believers today. So when we see a need in front of us, we cannot turn away from it. So this great crowd had been with Jesus for three days listening to Jesus teach over that time. It even says that, that some of them came from far away in verse 3. These people were unbelievably desperate to hear from Jesus. Now, this should force us to ask the question, what would you be willing to do or what would you go through in order to get to Jesus? Part of the difficulty is it's not hard today. You can read the Bible. I counted uh, about eight Bibles that were sitting next to me as I was writing this in my study. Uh, visit his bride, the church here. You can spend time with another believer the name Christian is, is literally referring to a little Christ. You can pray to Jesus. We have no excuse today to be distant from Jesus anymore. In fact, Jesus himself said it was better for him to leave because by leaving, the Holy Spirit now lives in all of us. That's far better than Jesus being constrained by his human body where he could only be in one place at a time. Now, last time the disciples were in this pickle where they had a great crowd that was hungry and didn't know how to feed them, they encouraged Jesus to send them into the surrounding areas. This time, that appears to not be an option. 
So it's described in, in both of these uh, stories, the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, as desolate places. But apparently there wasn't even like a city or community nearby to send these people into, so this would be like the desolate place of the desolate place. However, last time, does anyone remember how many loaves they had? Five. This time, at least they've got two more, so it should be a little bit easier for them. In response to what's going on, Jesus takes charge of the crowd. It says Jesus directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. So he has them make themselves comfortable, and then Jesus gives thanks, which this is not primary in the text, but just so you know, this is why Christians typically pray before meals. He goes on to break the bread, hands it to his disciples. But it's not just bread that they found. They also had a few small fish. I saw one translation that actually translated that as sardines. So think of tiny little sardines, like one, one uh, bite per little fish, and, and pass these things out as well. But um, they go on, pass out the small fish and the seven loaves of bread, and everyone was satisfied. Everyone. And not just satisfied, they actually took up seven baskets full of all these leftovers that they had. Now, does anyone remember how many leftovers were, were uh, uh, how many baskets full of leftovers were collected in the last story? Twelve, perfect. So this time there's only seven, not quite as many, but it's still signifying God's abundant provision for them. So the last one was, was, was intentionally chosen, the number 12, standing for the same reason Jesus chose 12 disciples. He is representing a brand new Israel here. So God's provision for the Jewish people he is communicating is above and beyond what anyone could actually need. So similar to this story, they ate beyond what they actually needed and had leftovers. Here, remember what I said at the beginning, we're in a Gentile country. This is significant because Jesus is not just providing for the Jewish people. Here, Jesus is providing for the Gentile people, above and beyond anything that they could have possibly needed with seven baskets full. So this is telling us God's overwhelming provision isn't limited to the Jewish people anymore. Now God's overwhelming provision also extends to the Gentiles. Now, the other thing that, that's nice is there were only 4,000 people. The last story talked about, it described 5,000 just men. So if 5,000 is just the number of men that are there, you can easily assume that there's twice as many if you include women and children who would have been there. But in both cases, what we have is after feeding all these people, teaching them, giving them the true words of life, Jesus then feeds them physically and sends them home. Then after that, verse 10, he immediately got into the boat and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Now, uh, back to the map. We've been somewhere over here. Remember last week we talked about the Decapolis? So on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. No one's quite sure where Dalmanutha is. Most people believe it is somewhere near Magdala which is on the west side of the lake. Not that it matters, just trying to help you get some perspective on where it's at. And as soon as they cross back over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, they run into another hard-hearted people. The key to understanding this text is, is seen in one of the verses that we'll get to in a little bit, but it's also seen in the response from the disciples to the previous feeding. So in Mark 6.52, this is after Jesus had fed, uh, fed the, the 5,000 men, so probably 10,000 people, he sends his disciples across on the boat and then walks on the water to them. After he uh, is spotted by them, he tries to pass by them, and he, and he can't sneak by, it says, they did not understand, this is the disciples, they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Now, what does a hardened heart look like? It's not believing who Jesus is or that he can provide for them. Remember, the entire point of Mark's gospel is to answer the question, who is Jesus? We're so close to the climax of this story here, where the disciples finally confess who Jesus is, but we're not quite there. 
So we're going to look at two different groups whose hearts are hardened. The first group is the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are once again looking for things wrong with Jesus. Now, uh, verse 11 says the Pharisees came and began to argue. Um, that, that word that is translated as argue is, is like accusatory or blaming. They are looking for problems or issues with Jesus. Uh, so think of it, maybe you've had a, a situation come up where you're in an argument that you weren't really prepared for. So this person has made assumptions about you and run with them, and by the time they actually talk to you, it has spiraled far beyond what has happened. That's exactly what the Pharisees are doing here. They're coming here to test, to, to investigate, to find any other ammo they can to use against Jesus. But notice what it is that they're looking for. It says they seek a sign from heaven. Now, just brief comment. We just, we just read about feeding 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread and a few sardines. What do you think you would call that? Do you think that might be a sign from heaven? Maybe. Micah, when he preached on the previous feeding, reminded us that there are some parallels between the feedings of the thousands and the manna that was provided to God's people in the wilderness wanderings. Both of these stories are done to show the ways God provides for all of his people. So he's saying if, if Jesus feeding thousands isn't a sign from heaven, what is? What do you think it would take for people to believe in him? Do you think maybe rising from the dead would do it? But then even then, people still disregard and refuse to believe in him. Now, I mentioned this last week as well. Verse 12 says, he sighed deeply in his spirit. There are two times in the entire Bible where Jesus is described as sighing. Last week, it's in response to the man who couldn't hear or talk. So Jesus is sighing at, at the brokenness and the, and the depravity of the world, the way sickness affects everyone. This week, it's in response to the Pharisees, to their hard-heartedness. See, hard-heartedness is a problem. It is a conscious choice to disbelieve Jesus, looking for any alternative option than Jesus being who he says he is, that is, God. Now, this isn't the only account we have of, of people asking Jesus for a sign. We see a similar, most likely the exact same story in Matthew's account. So here it says, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he, that is Jesus, answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Here Jesus is saying, just like Jonah was dead or perceived dead for three days, so he will be dead for three days. And this is revealing that the Pharisees are so hard-hearted that even the resurrection wouldn't be enough for them to believe in him which proved to be true long after the resurrection because Paul actually picks up this same idea in 1 Corinthians. So Paul writes this most likely about 20 years, two decades after the resurrection when he writes to the church at Corinth. He says, Jews demand what? Signs. There it is again. Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So Paul here is saying, the Jews are still looking for those signs, but the Gentiles aren't any better, because what they're looking for is wisdom, and Jesus refuses to play by their rules. See, Jesus is both the sign and the wisdom. Nothing else is needed, nothing else can add to what Jesus has already done. And the Pharisees miss the point that's literally standing right in front of them. 
But in this story, they're not the only ones who have a hard heart. Because the disciples go on and are in the same conundrum or the same pickle as these Pharisees. Now, remember the miracle that had just happened for at least the second time. Let's, let's go over this again. So the first time Jesus uh, fed the, the, at least 5,000 men, how many baskets were left over? Twelve. Okay, this story, there were seven loaves. How many baskets were left over? Seven. Perfect. That's what you need to know to go into this story. Um, did anyone go hungry in either of those situations? Not a bit. So the text says they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. Now, do you think maybe they started fighting with each other about who was supposed to bring the bread? Like Peter goes, John, I thought you were bringing the bread. I thought it was James. I thought it was the other James. It was Thomas's fault. It's, it's continued traveling down the line, blaming each other for who was supposed to bring the bread. Now, one thing to note, remember they were in Gentile territory. So they technically would have been unclean to have all this association, this, this spending time with this eating a meal with the Gentile people. So some scholars believe that the reason they didn't take much bread with them is because they had viewed all that bread as completely spoiled by the Gentiles. So they left it, not thinking ahead far enough for continued provision for them. But Jesus uses this as a teachable moment. Have you ever had one of those? A teachable moment, maybe with your kids? Uh, when I was growing up, I uh, uh, found my sister saying something about, like, I just, it drives me nuts when people at the church do this. And I used it, like, I, I had all of uh, three years of, of my college experience under my belt, so I had all the answers for her. So I told her exactly where she was wrong, continued to, to go for probably about five minutes on it, and then turned to my dad and said, see, Dad, that's how you do it. And my dad said, when I tried doing that to you when you were growing up, you accused me of preaching at you. So all of us have these teachable moments in our lives. Use them sparingly. <laughs> and be careful. Make sure you know what you're talking about when you, when you go for them. So Jesus does what I tried doing to my sister, but he does it right. He uses this forgetting of bread as a teachable moment. And brings the focus and attention to remind the disciples to be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. Now, you may be asking, what is leaven? It's a great question. So today, we have this thing called refrigeration, which is great. Like, if I, I was listening to a podcast recently where someone was asking, if, if you could go back 100 years and be the richest person in the world, would you do it? And everyone initially thinks, well, of course I would. I could build all the, all the houses I want. I could drive the best cars in the, in, that, that ever existed. Think about what kind of cars people drove in 1920. You sure you want to live 100 years ago? Even if you were the richest person in the world? Like, has anyone ever heard of air conditioning? Anyone like it? I'm a big fan. Or pushing a button on my thermostat and my house getting warm automatically without me carrying firewood in all the time. Jim Givens, thanks for bringing us firewood all the time for that. Uh, but I would not want to live 100 years ago. So they didn't have refrigeration the same way we have refrigeration today. So what we do with refrigeration is in, in our freezer, we have this little thing called yeast. Anyone ever heard of yeast? Um, I think it's like a miraculous thing because you throw it in with some like flour and bread and suddenly it like expands. I made some... Uh, uh, little hero rolls a couple, uh, like a week ago, and it, just, it blows my mind. Like You just mix all this stuff up, leave it for a little bit, and it gets way bigger. It's amazing. They did not know how to, or couldn't find ways of, of containing yeast. So the way that they made their bread rise was they used leaven. Each time they made a new loaf of bread, they would rip a little piece of it off and leave it off on the counter. Mix that into the next loaf and continue allowing the yeast to expand and build up in this bread. So he's talking about leaven. You can almost replace it with yeast today, but, but it's a, a small little piece of dough that affects and influences everything that's in here. Now, why would he, his disciples need to watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod? We saw this last week and the week before. 
that the Pharisees were adding laws and cultural ideas onto Christianity. Herod is adding political ideas onto Christianity. And the difficulty is this is the trend of every generation of Christians. There's a, a book that I've been working through for a while now by a guy named Richard Loveless. It's called Dynamics of Spiritual uh, Development, I think is the name. Uh, but one of the things he talks about in there is, is he talks about like the, the way uh, um, revival happens across our, our culture, the way people are purified, the way, the way they become uh, committed and connected more towards what God is doing in our midst. And, and then he goes on to talk about the way that, that spiritual decline happens. And he says, one of the first effects of spiritual decline among the people of God is destructive enculturation, saturation with the godless culture of the surrounding world. Enculturation, that is bringing cultural elements and adding them in to Christianity. So can you be a Christian, we talked about this before, can you be a Christian and watch movies? Can you be a Christian and listen to music that is done, written, performed by, by non-Christians? Can you be a Christian and eat food that has been sacrificed to idols? Can you be a Christian and work on Sunday? All these questions are cultural trappings that we have added into Christianity. When, when Christianity can't be contained or summarized in any of the cultures around us. But some of the difficulty of it is what does this mean for us in America, but what does it also mean for brothers and sisters who are, are serving in Africa? We need to be aware of, of some of the global perspective of, of how we have added all these cultural ideas onto our faith. Now, last week I talked about this as, as legalism versus licentiousness or religion versus irreligion, whatever term you want to use. We have this tendency to add ideas onto what Jesus has actually commanded us to do and be. So in response to that, the disciples go to only focus on the physical. Verse 16, they begin discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. All the disciples can think about is right here and right now. Now, let's think about this again. What miracle did we just see happen in Mark? Not once, but twice. Taking loaves and multiplying them. Who was the one who did that? Jesus. Who is sitting with them there in the boat? Jesus. Do you think maybe, just maybe... One loaf of bread is enough to feed 12 people with Jesus standing there? Now, Jesus knows exactly what they're focusing on, and he wants to move this conversation to a deeper level. He wants to answer the question, what's really going on in your hearts? These disciples have all these expectations of Jesus, exactly like the Pharisees do, that Jesus is intentionally starting to challenge. So Jesus just goes on a run of questions for them. Now, this, this serves as a distinction between the Pharisees and the disciples. Let's, let's go back and see what the Pharisees did. Uh, this one. So he says, Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. He left them, got into the boat, and went back to the other side. So he does not engage. He doesn't teach them. He doesn't try to help the, the Pharisees see or learn anything new. What does he do with the disciples? He moves towards them and starts teaching them. So the first question, he says, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Second question, don't you yet get it? Third, is your heart still hardened? That is, do you not yet believe me? Are you refusing to trust in my provision of you? Fourth, do you not remember? Or sorry, having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? Now, that specific wording in verse 18 is very specific, and he's actually quoting from an Old Testament passage. In Jeremiah 5, Jeremiah says, Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes, but do not see, have ears, but hear not. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. But this people, 
has a stubborn and rebellious heart, a hard heart. They have turned aside and gone away. By quoting this, this exact passage, Jesus is actually telling his disciples how they should be responding to him. But they don't fear him. They don't tremble before him. They don't still recognize who he is. So he's warning them. With the last verse in the section, this people has a stubborn, rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. He's asking the disciples, are you going to turn aside and go away? Or are you going to continue coming to me? Next question he asks them in verse 18. Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves, how many baskets were taken up? They said 12. Seven for the 4,000. How many did you take up? He said seven. So he's going back and saying, you guys benefited from all the miracles that I performed. You are the ones that, that, that had all this abundant provision. Don't you think that I might continue to provide for you now? In response to the, their last response, 7 and 12, he says to them, don't you get it? How long is it going to take? Now, thankfully, we're on, just on the cusp. We're really close to the disciples finally realizing who Jesus is. It won't come through legalistic demands like the Pharisees. It won't come about through political insurrection like Herod. It comes through a death and resurrection. Now, I think there's two things that we need to, to take away from this passage. One, where do you look for things other than Jesus to satisfy you? Where do you look for things other than Jesus to satisfy you? It could be political ideas. It could be work ideas. It could be a spouse. It could be kids. It could be financial things. It could be the car you drive. Whatever it is, those things are idols that we need to rep repent from and instead turn to Jesus. But the second thing I think for us is what do you need to do to learn the truths of what Jesus says? Do you need to start reading the Bible more frequently? Do you need to get involved in a small group? Do you need to attend a class on Sunday morning? Do you need to meet with someone regularly for accountability and prayer? Whatever it is, start today. Make a conscious choice and effort to take one step closer to Jesus. And then wake up tomorrow and do the same thing. That's what Jesus has called us to do to start understanding, to start applying, and start living out the truths of what he has commanded us to do and be. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the ways that you continually provide for us above and beyond what we could ask or imagine. Thank you for the ways that you work in all of our hearts to, to draw us to yourself, to conform us into your image, and provide everything we need for growth and godliness. We thank you for your word, your word that, that transforms us and conforms us day by day into the image of Jesus. Even as we think of the idea that we are Christians, may we consciously reflect and remember the reality that we are supposed to be little Christs. God, may we look towards others with compassion, with soft hearts. May we love others and do unto others as we would want done to us. God, I pray that each day we would die to ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow after you so that when people see us, they will give thanks and glorify you, our good Father in heaven. God, help us. We confess that we so often look towards uh, satisfaction and provision and things apart from you. Help us to, to find ways to strip those away. Help encourage us and, and help us encourage each other to... to Continue, uh, to stop relying on our flesh and start relying more fully and faithfully on you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.